But do you know, Tom, I'm actually, I want to encourage people to get out and march. And I'm going to go on this march. There's going to be a march because that, that like what the way Philip Hammond was talking, I didn't vote for any fucking do. I just voted to leave. Fuck them. We're definitely leaving. They don't, they've, they underestimate the fury of the average Britain. Well, now they're trying to see fucking Amber Rudd. We're already a year into Brexit and she says she wants to start a year's consultation into EU migration. They're doing all the things they should have done before they triggered Article yeah. 50. I can see it. You can see them trying to reel it back. I don't mind them talking about transition period as long as there's a set date. I don't well, mind. I think the one thing that's going to save us, believe it or not, is Corbyn. When he said, um, I'm ready to negotiate Brexit for Britain, Michel Barnier, he must have punched a hole in the wall when he yeah. heard that. Like, yeah. Motherfucker! Like, do you know what I mean? You know, Corbyn... Sucker! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tom, Dick and Still No Hyman Show. Name change is imminent. No matter, the show must go on. I'm Tom and joining me once again is Tim. Good day or good evening, depending on what time you're listening. On today's show, we stroke our quickly deflating Brexit boners over Christopher Nolan's visual tour de force in his depiction of the miracle of Dunkirk. Before that, we discuss the Advertising Standard Agency's new rules on banning gender stereotypes. I'm surprised they haven't done it already. But kicking us off, Tim and I offer our advice to help the BBC with their women problem. So, a couple of weeks ago, the BBC revealed that Jodie Whittaker of Broadchurch fame is the new and 13th Doctor, and also the very first woman to take the role. Take the role, take the role. Should I say take the role? Is someone going to get upset at that? Is someone going to take that the wrong way? Like she stole it? Well, it's quite a big role she'd be taking. Some uh, big shoes. Peter Capaldi's shoes she's got to fill. <laughs> but I woke up to this news and uh, already by like half seven in the morning, the narrative in the media was that there was this massive angry male backlash on social media. Yeah. So I went on Twitter. I was following all the different hashtags for about an hour and a half in the morning. I saw barely any backlash whatsoever. So was it fake news, Tom? I think it could have been. I think I saw, <laughs> I counted three from the your podgy white boy I'm angry at the world. Fuck Doctor Who. Fuck the BBC. I'm not watching it now because of this. How dare it be a woman? I saw three tweets like that. And there's probably some tweets from people who don't even watch Doctor Who and are just trolls. Yeah, probably. Literally a handful, but millions of posts saying like, oh, these men crying their manly tears. Yeah. The vast majority were just, yay, glad it's a woman, about time it's a woman, blah, blah, blah. And I counted maybe about 2025 that were referencing male tears, fragile masculinity, that kind of, you know, on that kind of of angle. Sort of referencing some imaginary huge backlash. I mean, did you see any of it? No. Did you see the articles referencing the backlash? Yeah, and they were like pretty long, detailed articles with a lot of pictures. Oh, they actually had examples? 
Well, no, just pictures of Doctor Who. Pictures, <laughs> pictures of Jodie Whittaker. Pictures of Jodie yeah. Whittaker. Like, I found out about it. I don't watch Doctor Who, so I found out about it by reading about it in The Sun. And, uh, oh, God. Of course, in, in, the, in the space of the same story, I was uh, acquainted with Miss Whittaker's uh, tits and arse, which they'd managed yeah, to get some nice shots of from with... previous uh, films she's been Why in. Why does The Sun always do that? They always find out. Because well, every actress has that moment in their career, I'm sure, where it's like somebody asks them to do a topless shot or whatever. You and then, like in today's age, it exists forever. Sure, fuck you, son. <laughs> no, it, it got me on board. Things I don't even I don't watch Doctor Who, like I said, but I might start watching it now. Talking about the articles referencing a backlash, a non-existent backlash. It was the usual culprits, like the Independent, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, The Guardian. Yeah, I saw these articles by like seven a.m. in the morning. And I think they were basically had to have been written either the night before, Jeremy. They were pre-written articles that were anticipating a backlash that never actually happened. So, yeah, like you say, it's like manufactured fake news trademark. You could say it's fair to say there is like an overarching argument of the alteration of sort of traditional norms in our, in our sort of new like way. Well, male role models? Yeah, switching stuff around. Like for years they've been saying... The gender swap. For years they've been saying we should have like you know, a female James Bond, you know? And well, I'm hearing more black, like uh, Idris Elba. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, fine. Whatever. Totally. Yeah, so it's like a, this change of the norm. Right. So you see, there is this overarching thing in popular culture now where every, every, all these roles are getting... Diversity. Role reversal transformers. That's why I think there wasn't such a big surprise over it. But uh, speaking of the non-existent backlash, here's Doctor Who executive producer Stephen Moffat. Uh, could I just say something as well? I just wanted to, because I, I th- I'm sure a lot of people in this room are feeling exactly as I do. There is um, uh, so many press articles about a backlash among Doctor Who fandom against the casting of a female Doctor. There has been no backlash at all. It has been, uh, the, the story of the moment is that is that the notionally conservative Doctor Who fandom has utterly embraced that change completely. 80% approval on social media. Not that I check these things obsessively. Ah, ah well, there you go, Stephen. Only 80%. There's that 20% of bigots yeah. that we need to deal with. They need to be rounded up. These fascists need to be rounded up and put in camps. Why do you think the media has done this, though? Why would they anticipate the angry male backlash? The media is more about making a narrative, isn't it? I don't see the end game of, of if there is a sort of grand plan of turning everything on its head. Mm. I don't see what, what the sort of conflict, why they're trying to create a conflict in that. Do you recall last year, we, uh, we did a podcast on this, well, segment on this, the all-female Ghostbusters. Do you recall, though, that there was the male backlash then, supposedly? I think it was... There was, there was a real one, because Ghostbusters it is was, a great film. It was overstated, though. <laughs> you can't fuck around with the original ghostbusters it was overplayed though yeah it wasn't like there was a little bit yeah. of a backlash a little bit of a fuck you whatever but i think it was overstated but i think what a lot of media websites news websites like the independent and huff post i think what they discovered was that there was a ton of traction to the story a lot of people liked clicking links talking about mra's upset at leslie jones and what have you do you know what I, mean? I think it generated a bit of ad revenue do you know something tom i've it's just clicked it's just clicked in my head they're so clever. Yeah. These bastards. Yeah. Because what's, what's like the oldest fucking conflict 
in time that will never be resolved. Gender wars. Men and women, you know, two different sides of the same yeah. coin. But there's always the opposite. Just by, juxtaposition. And-, and to be honest with you, we've always seemed to get along quite well. But now, like, maybe they're putting so much heat into the battle now. They're like... <laughs> But it's, it's a great way of just creating conflict and clicks, like you say, because men and women will just like always like arguing, <laughs> basically. Well, I mean, have, you, um, have you seen the, uh, I've seen there a lot on Amazon and eBay, white coffee mugs that say male tears. So the idea is you're drinking male tears. Yeah. I think that's like become a market. I think there's um, a certain subset of, I would say women and men. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say just like feminists, but... Kind of. Right? I mean, they'd be the kind of people that probably would identify as feminists. But yeah, I think there's actually maybe not a massively multi-million dollar sort of lucrative market, but yeah. there's some money in what I would call the male tears market. Yeah, and like you say, or, or you, another way you could describe it is the wah 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 market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah. necessarily have it's to be that male fucking tears. Emoji. You know the emoji with the, the crying, like the water's yeah. coming out of their <laughs> yeah, eyes. Yeah, I yeah. fucking hate that emoji, man. Yeah. It makes me want to punch someone. Yeah, but that's it. It's basically laughing at someone else's failure or ignorance, isn't it? Or you know, unenlightenment, which we, and it's actually a very unenlightened thing to do. So, but there's a supply and demand problem, though. There's not nearly as many of that kind of neck-bearded, basement-dwelling virgin. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, that hates all... Anytime someone, a woman does well, they can't fucking stand it. Do you know what I mean? There's hardly any men really like that. Yeah, so there's <laughs> hardly any men like that. So that's... that's. But if you flip it over on the other side, there's a massive market because there's millions of more victims now. We're creating, like, new victims every day. So, like, there's a lot more opportunities to say, like, oh, you're not you're not up up to speed with my way of life. So, you know, you're, you're a dickhead. I can laugh at you and drink your tears. I was going to say, it's... I think it's uh, mostly middle-class white women who recognise... The they don't run the world, but they recognise they're, they're starting to become the ones who are in a position of privilege now. Mm. They're the ones who are doing really well in society. And I think they kind of know what's coming, that if they take the top spot away from the, the straight white male, yeah. then everybody's going to start hating on them. And so I think they're getting in there now with this, oh, no, 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 we're, we're victims too. And they've got money. These middle class white women. Well, they hold the purse strings and, uh, yeah, like I said, they rule the world. (laughs) And advertisers are going after them in the sense of like they want their money. But like I say, like I say, I think it is just, uh, it is a very clever way of just generating heat. Isn't it? And, and in today's clickbait world, where like even news reports must only be 30 seconds or you'll watch something else, yeah. the more sort of fire and fury and scatter shot you can get, the more it is. And um, we, we just got to get used to it, Tom. We may be like, oh, you know, it's a bit, I don't know, I might start watching Doctor Who now. So it's worked. <laughs> you know, I didn't watch Doctor Who for years. Speaking of um, the non existent backlash, I saw more tweets along the lines of people being pissed off that it's a white woman. Like, why couldn't it be a black woman? Baby steps, Tom, baby steps. <laughs> it's very likely that the next Doctor Who will probably won't be English. Um, <laughs> That's the only way I can say it. Was one of them Canadian? I can't. No. I think there might have been a non-English. One was Scottish, wasn't it? Peter Capaldi, Scottish. Don't be racist. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? They... You know what I mean? I'm saying the next Doctor Who will probably be um, a different, a different uh, ethnic have group. dark skin. It will be a different ethnic group, yeah, because Doctor Who has always been white english guy yeah now it's a, a white english woman where are they going to go though they might bat themselves into a corner three or four doctor who's from now they'll just have to have like a rock <laughs> that won't you'll just sit there well because it'll it... have like a cape on but it'll just be a rock but isn't like doctor who plausibly couldn't it be anything it doesn't necessarily doctor who doesn't necessarily have to take the form of a human right he's a, he's meant to be a gallifreyan time lord he 
Time Lord. Time Lord, not Time Lady. He's oh. meant to be. Oh, no, 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 no. If you you go, said he. Yeah, because if you go into... Reactionary. There was a cynical response as well. A lot of people made the connection that the ratings for Doctor Who have been going down the last three, four, maybe five series, like on a continuous downward trend. And so they had to do something to spice it up, to change things up. Mm. They've decided doing a gender swap in order to reinvigorate the audience for Doctor Who. Mm. But I, I honestly don't think that the gender of Doctor Who won't, won't really affect it at all. Like, Doctor Who was never one really for, like, fisticuffs or shooting people. Are there love interests? Creeping up on them and breaking their necks. There has always been love interests, yes. Well, then that changes. Uh, that's a different dynamic right there, then. Well, he could be bisexual. It might be it might be a good ex- like a different experience for women watching a woman protagonist. Yeah, but like, I don't. Think and then it, the male love interest. Yeah, but I'm saying he won't deal with his problems in a different way just because he's a woman. It won't actually change the fundamental way he, way he dealt with things. Like I said, he didn't he didn't go around snapping necks and roundhouse kicking people. Um, wits. It's about wits. Yeah, exactly. Like some people were being really cynical and saying, "Oh, they just they picked a woman because they've got these quotas now." And that's all it was. It was a cynical ticking of a box. I disagree with that because there's a new lead writer for Doctor Who who was the lead writer on Broadchurch who worked obviously closely with Jodie Whittaker. And that's how it works in TV and movies. Super nepotistic and familiar. It's not nepotism, but it is who you know. Yeah. Who you've worked with previously and built up a rapport with. That's Mm. how TV works. Yeah. Trust, isn't it? Trust someone not to fuck the job up. But you don't think having a woman would change it at all? So like, I, I don't think it will change the way that Doctor Who deals with problems, but it might change the way that the antagonists... There might be sexist condescension from the male antagonist. What do you think it's going to do? Do you think it will save the show ratings-wise? Oh, definitely. More I, people are going to watch it now than before. I think the I'm first... going to watch it. I'm going to watch it now. <laughs> but I think the first episode... It's going to do really well ratings-wise. However, I mean, it's this all depends on the writing of the show, really, rather than Jodie Whittaker, right? If they start going for that male tears market, they mm. start making references to manspreading and mansplaining, they might turn off a big chunk of the audience. Judging by just the way the BBC, sometimes it's like they can't help themselves, can they? It, it's almost like it just, it just happens automatically now with the BBC. They'll always be preachy, auntie, auntie Beeb just preaching. I did see on Newsnight a woman was saying, well, look, it's important that young girls, young boys, they both have positive role models. Completely. I agree, right? It's essential. what we're kind of, we seem to, uh, what's become fashionable at the moment is taking traditional male role models and then doing the gender swap. Now, logically, if you were to continue down that path doing that year on year on year, eventually you'd end up where there were no positive male role models left yeah it's and it's really important thing like i thank my lucky stars that i grew up during the 80s because i was i was <laughs> schwarzenegger well and... mine and millions of other little boys our role models were like like you say schwarzenegger knight rider yeah. airwolf the a team i'm lucky that i grew up the age i was because i think if i grew up today who would my role models be and who would i try to emulate um uh the the, the guys jody from... whittaker <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the guys. You know I, mean? I was going to say the guys from the only way is Essex or something like that. Uh, yeah, which Made is terrible. Chelsea, yeah, maybe. it's terrible. It's often nicknamed Auntie, but Uncle might be more appropriate. The BBC revealing a yawning pay gap between its male and female stars when it published its top earners' salaries for the first time Wednesday. 
The 95-year-old public broadcaster has been under pressure to do so for years. Now the government has forced its hand in return for a new funding settlement. The corporation's detractors jumped on the figures. The BBC has long been resented by rival broadcasters who say the licence fee distorts the market. That fee, levied on every UK household with a television, is also what sharpens public interest. So that was a couple of weeks ago that BBC announced the 13th new Doctor Who. The following week, however, Tim... There was the the report of basically everyone in the BBC's wages who earn more than a hundred thousand £150,000 and it wasn't what the Prime it, Minister earned and it wasn't something that the BBC just thought one day hey guys just guess what I think there was some trade off with the Tories or something like that yeah it was almost like it was almost like they they didn't want us to know <laughs> certain things about their pay structure but the shocking revelation two thirds of the top earners in the BBC who earn over £150,000 a year. Two thirds of them are men. And not only that, but in the 500000 or more bracket, there is only one single woman. What do you think this says, Tim? I just say the BBC is probably like every other large organisation and business in the world in that they typically pay men more than women. Why would that be? Though? I don't know because I don't pay anybody. <laughs> yeah, not being an employer, maybe we're not privy to that. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking if... Because it's just always been that way, apparently, since time immemorial. But if I had employees, if I had a group of employees, I don't think I'd pay a woman less deliberately. Would you do it by mistake without realising? Is that what's happened? Is the, BB, the BBC, this arbiter of uh, political correctness and progressiveness, they're just as bad as everyone else with their sexist practices underpaying women yeah it doesn't help that the bbc has got a little bit preachy on this stuff for the last few years so naturally a sexism row broke out i noticed for the most part though people got bogged down in this sort of distraction of getting engaged in the popularity contest of comparing the salary of a presenter they do like with the salary of a presenter they despise well chris evans got a lot of ire because he he turned out to be probably the best paid of all he was got like he was paid like 2.2 million not to do top gear um. <laughs> <laughs> but also on people's shit list gary lineker he earned uh what was it 1.8 something like that yeah yeah, yeah. but what match of the day and just irritating tweets <laughs> He's too much of a lovey. But that's why this was like a beautiful sort of justice. I'm sure you enjoyed camera crews being on the doorstep of uh, Chris Evans' home and Gary Lineker and shoving microphones in their mouth, demanding that they justify their fat salaries. No, what, and, why, and like, why do you get paid more than the women? No, no, no. What, what I enjoyed most was uh, I get up really early in the mornings, but I always put my TV on in the background. So I always had the breakfast TV on and like uh, fucking the lady and the guy were sitting next to each other on the sofa because the, the woman was like fucking really pissed off. You could tell. Yeah, belligerent. And the guy, and I read that the guy was on like 200,000 and she wasn't on the list so she was under 150,000 she's probably right on the cusp and apparently there, there has been this sort of um, pe- like uh, petition that loads of the women in the BBC have signed now there's a letter from 40 women yeah. including um, Emily Jane Maitlis. Garvey Emily Maitlis uh, Victoria Derbyshire demanding instant yeah. pay rises yeah. but people got bogged down in the popularity contest of it like getting into pissing contests of like who should be paid more, this guy, this woman, blah, 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 right? But what this shows, back in the day, audiences used to be loyal to certain TV stations. There was a brand loyalty. That doesn't exist anymore. What, what it is now is audiences 
like and start becoming emotionally attached to certain personalities, certain presenters. And they'll follow where whatever station that presenter moves to, the audience will go with them. And I think that's what this shows, the people getting bogged down in the pissing contest of... I think I think the sort of hidden story here is probably the the power of some agents in the business. Yeah, like, true. Imagine uh, fucking John Humphrey's agent, but just the prestige of having someone like that in your portfolio and your clientele, just to keep them in the stable. A lot of voices could be heard saying, "Well, look, it should be the same pay." Like you referenced earlier, the uh, the morning presenters, the man and the woman, because it's always the same setup. Man sits on the left, woman sits on the right. Mm-hmm. They, they're doing essentially the same job, right? So they should get the exact same pay. Yeah, a, a thousand percent. I don't know. Whatever, the women shouldn't be paid less. <laughs> I don't think it's the exact same job, though. Like, no two TV presenters, even two TV presenters on the, exact, on the same show, Yeah, they're never exactly the same. No. Well, you get, like, Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid. They do the good cop, bad cop thing when it yeah, comes to Good morning, Britain. Not, <laughs> not BBC, so their salaries are not going to be published. They no. work for a private corporation. Yeah. But my point is, say, take Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid. If you got rid of either Piers or Susanna... There's going to be, I think there'll be an audience drop-off, but I don't think it would be equal. I'm not sure who has the bigger following between the two of them, but it wouldn't be the same audience drop-off if one, of the, one or either, either of them left. There's going to be some discrepancy there. Yeah, but people will follow Piers Morgan because they hate him. Yeah, he's smart. Mo- he figured mo- that out. Yeah, people will just follow Susanna Reid because she's, she's lovely. Now, Chairman of GlaxoSmithKline, Sir Philip Hampton. He uh, recently co-authored a government paper looking into how to increase the number of women on company boards and get the number of female CEOs up and things like that. Mm. He got himself involved in this sexism realm. And uh, he stated that in his time, in his experience, no woman has ever come to him and asked for a pay rise. Yeah, but... The whole issue of pay rises is a very interesting thing, isn't it? It's we live in an age where like your your pay might go up with inflation, or <laughs> probably not. Probably not. It's a sort of unofficial grey area, no man's land. Because that's the worst that could happen, right? Is that yeah. they could say no. Yeah. They can't fire you. Can't be fired for asking for a raise. Yeah, I think I've you asked. You can be laughed out of the room. I've had like loads of different jobs, and I think only in one job I've ever asked for a pay rise. Do you and think I got anything it. I got to, it. I was going to say, do you think there's anything to what Sir Philip Hampton is saying yes. that men are more likely to ask for a pay rise? Yes. I think they're risk, been, they're risk takers. I think there has been recent research into this, and I think it's actually it's actually statistically negligible the difference between the number of men and number of women in terms of likeliness to ask for a pay rise. But I think something that does happen is men take shorter term contracts, like one to two years contracts. Whereas women think more long term and take three to five year contracts. And what that means is opportunities to renegotiate your salary come up more frequently mm. than it does for women. I do think women ask for pay rises, though. Yeah, but it will only get worse as, as we move into this gig economy oh, where yeah. ev- everyone, everyone's going to be self-employed. When the robots come as well. A lot of the BBC women took offence to Sir Philip Hampton's words. And I think there was an interview with John Humphreys where he actually kind of dispelled the myth Philip Hampton was pushing. And I'm pushing. Let's have a little listen. How would you explain to an ordinary member of the public why you earn as much as you earn? I'm not sure I could explain it, to be absolutely honest. Um, But I suppose I would say I have been with the BBC for a very long time, as in 50 years. Uh, I've been with the Today Room for 30 years. When I joined the BBC, I was earning a couple of grand 
the year and gradually over the years that followed, the many, many years that followed, uh, I didn't ask for it, but they suggested to me that I should go freelance because I'd been on the staff as a foreign correspondent and all the rest of it. So that meant I got a huge lift in my salary, unasked for it, has to be said. Um, and then when I came to the Today programme 30 years ago, I got another bit of a lift and it's kind of gone up and up and up. So you, but, make, you um, make it sound very passive as though... It's well, just it, sort of I make it sound very passive because it was very passive. I at no stage went to the BBC and said, I demand more money because I'm absolutely bloody brilliant. But he, he very quickly glossed over the bit where he said, when I went freelance, he had that very, you know... Yeah, but they're all... That I was think, like 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's moot because I think they're all independent contractors more than employees. But you heard him say there, he never actually directly asked for a pay rise. It was always just offered to him. Right. Which kind of contradicts what this it's sort of Philip Hampton guy is saying. It's sort of shifting the blame. but and, and, it, and it is a very... It can be quite an unsettling thing to, to hear someone having to justify why they're paid a certain amount of money like you or I yeah, nobody wants to be asked you or that, I wouldn't no. do that and you could say like why is this evil freelancer you know threatening this poor organisation you've got to give me 700 grand a year around going well no that's the whole point it's he, the never, organization he never demanded care. it yeah the organisation that's the whole point though that's what the point yeah. of the video is to say he didn't mm. go in and demand this salary it just kept mm. going up and up and up he didn't yeah. have to ask for it yeah there is definitely something fishy going on at the BBC. I think there is a genuine undervaluing of female talent. I think BBC executives look at female talent as though we can replace you. Well, just through the force. We'll keep the men longer. Well, just through the force of them. You know, you look at some of the big beasts they have, like, you know, Andrew Neil. If he were like a woman, he wouldn't still be around, Andrew Neil. No matter how good he was as a woman, he still wouldn't, he wouldn't still be around. Yeah. It's, it's like that sort of sexist thing where, like, a, a guy can be like that, whereas a woman will be like, oh, she's like an old battle you know. I'm trying to just take a woman's view sometimes. Are you being devil's advocate? Like, don't call women the devil, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, we are two blokes. So sometimes I have to try and put a girl's hat on. We're but two, that's as far as I'm cross-dressing. <laughs> we're two blokes, but we're also two blokes who don't earn anywhere near six figures. Mm. You know, if you get 500k a year, it's kind of difficult for me to get worked up about this like we're talking about millionaires that live in country estates and things yeah. you know what i mean like, you and i are like pretty uh, uh, just above the sort of bartering in animal skins <laughs> and rocks level so like we, we can't really appreciate but from, from a layman's perspective two paychecks away from being homeless man they make a fortune don't they these tv people that's something i think needs to change not so much the on-screen context, they're behind the screen. The directors, executive producers, mm. you need more women there. But having said that, I think the BBC outperforms the private sector in that sense. I think there's more women in higher-up positions. Mm. So the BBC's got to change. Is it's, it going to change? It's apple and oranges comparisons that I think are a waste of time. I think it's completely arbitrary to begin with this 150k benchmark uh, threshold but what can the women of BBC do? I mean, so far they've written this, 40 of them have uh, signed a letter demanding a pay rise. But big problem with that, though, the BBC have committed the last few years to lowering the overall personnel costs. Mm. That figure that needs to come down. Oh, well, there's going to be a lot less runners and fluffers <laughs> <laughs> walking the halls of uh, Broadcasting yeah. House in the next few years. That's all I can see happening. Exactly. If they want to raise women's pay, the on-screen talent women's pay, they're going to have to offshore a lot of other jobs. And the BBC's already doing this. Their IT department is moving offshore now. Wow. There and you go, uh, you rich women. <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many poor women working in IT? 
and they're probably had to lose their jobs, and they're, they're probably having to like put aside loads of cash every year just as a sort of legal insurance against all what, the fucking pe- all the pedo shit. Yeah, what do they call that contingency plan? <laughs> <laughs> the Savile Protocols. Hey, he's he's Voldemort, man. He, they don't mention his name in the offices of BBC. What realistically can the BBC do to right this wrong? They don't have to do anything, Tom. Well, I think they do. I think a lot of people are pissed off. Yeah, but until the actual law changes, they don't have to do anything. But they can't just start slashing men's salaries. That would be sexist discrimination. They can't just say, we're going to institute a policy now where men's salaries are going to start tumbling down to match women's salaries. That would be illegal. Yeah, maybe just call the whole damn thing off. Just stop working for the BBC. Just the BBC's... It's it's become an an irrelevance on one level in terms of access to it. A cultural institution, BBC. I think there's research that everyone watches BBC at least once a week, something like that. Like, all TV households. Well, it's the first fucking channel that comes on when you turn the TV on, isn't it? It's a massive institution, that's what I'm saying. But they can't just start slashing men's salaries. However, the aforementioned policy that the BBC have of lowering personnel costs, getting those salaries down, I think they'll just continue on with that. And I think there'll be um, an effective pay freeze for the men, the high-earning men. Their salaries aren't going to go up anymore. And the real top earners, like the Chris Evans and Gary Linekers, what's going to happen is when their contracts come from renewal, I think the BBC are just going to say, listen, we need to we need to homogenize pay levels here. Mm. We're going to let you go to ITV, Sky, whatever. So I think basically all that's going to happen is salaries, BBC salaries are going to come down across the board for everyone in the end. Yeah. But they don't have to do that, though. If if you or I, we don't have to watch the BBC if we don't want to. We still have to pay, pay the... the TV license. Yeah. So until that changes, they don't have to do anything. There is a um, the subtext here. Yeah. The um like do you need the shadowy to... figure in the background is the Tory Party, right? Oh. And their hatred oh. of the BBC. Well, at least a subset of the Tories hate the BBC. They can't believe it's still in operation. There's these graying Tories who are super laissez-faire, free market libertarians yeah. who want the BBC dead. Yeah. Like why? Like if we, uh, you'd be laughed out of the room if I if I said to like you, oh, you got you got to pay me ten pounds every six months to use your toaster, a television license. Because it's public airways, okay, fine, it kind of... I'm all right with it, do you know what I mean? But at the same time, I don't think people should be going to prison for not paying it. And they do. That's too much. They do. And even the, for my... And the ones life. who go to prison are disproportionately women. Like 52%? No, like 80%. But negative news stories invariably lead to an uptick in the number of people who are like, yeah, we should scrap the BBC license fee, and the Tories know this, and they've basically orchestrated this. They knew there was going to be a gender disparity between the pay. They knew it was going to be a negative story for the Beeb. That's cool, then. I like that sort of tactical <laughs> tactical Machiavellian wickedness. They're devious, man. The Tories have got it in them to be ruthless, but they're fucking up Brexit. Because they don't want it to happen. Let's not talk about Brexit, Tom. You talked about, like... Um, Another Tory re- Bre- wet dream. At the start of the programme, you talked about Brexit boners deflating. And yeah. it's true. And all that blood has gone to my head. And it's making me very <laughs> angry. So let's not talk about it. But, yeah, I think on this one, women, the BBC women, mild, mild sympathy. A lot of these women are really, like, they're already millionaires, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like claiming to be oppressed it's like ugh, and it's on. a great fucking job dream job surely right yeah you t- you get driven so to it's work it's not as easy as you I think you were going to say it's an easy job right? say it was an easy job okay but if you enjoy if you enjoy the performance living your dreams right? 
So from a Tory wet dream to more of a communist wet dream, the Advertising Standards Agency has decided gender stereotypes are to be burned. Yorkie, please, mate. You're not a bird, are you? No. Explain the offside rule, then. A player cannot be in an advanced position of the opponent's last defender when the ball is played. Open that. Stockings are tight. Stockings. Oh, look! A big hairy spider! You know, that wrapper really brings out the beautiful blue of your eyes. Really? Yorkie. Five big masculine chunks of chocolate. That was a 90s advert for Yorkie Chocolate Bar. One of the few chocolate bars aimed squarely at men. Yeah. I think there was Yorkie and Lion Bar. So it was, it was basically a very feminine female with a, uh, <laughs> a construction helmet Almost and a YMCA. fake, fake moustache on. <laughs> Pretty much YMCA kind of get up. Buying these bars that are exclusively only for sale to men. Of course, that would be illegal to not sell a Yorkie bar to a woman. But even the advert itself might be illegal soon. Well, do you remember they did come out with a pink Yorkie bar, a sort of tongue-in-cheek response to uh, northern women complaining <laughs> about how they can eat Yorkie bars too? Now, that's an example of an advert that would now be banned under the newly proposed guidelines from the UK's Advertising Standards Agency regarding the promotion of gender stereotypes. Do you think it's right that an advert like that should be banned, Tim? I don't think any advert should be banned. Wow, not even like the really bogus ones of like, oh. selling you miracle oil and shit. Well, buyer beware. I, you know, I think even going back podcasts ago, we were talking about adverts being banned on the tube. Women with beach bodies. Episode 17. Are you beach body ready? The bright yellow poster with the bikini model on it. I always say like caveat emptor, buyer beware. Like just, just from something positing itself as an advert, it, it's giving you a choice of yes or no they're not holding a gun to your head no because the asa released a study saying that adverts can be harmful in terms of reinforcing negative gender stereotypes i'm sorry like i said actually i'm quite glad like in 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 the last bit i was taking the place of of a woman (laughs) yeah put my woman's hat on in touch with a feminine but now now i'm going the other way because the facts are we've had female prime ministers astronauts jet fighters soldiers and it's so offensive i think to a a girl that she's so stupid she'll be like influenced by like the oxo mum on tv doing something stupid that advert might be banned under these new guidelines yes it's it only shows the mother cooking the roast because they think the stupid girl will look up to that woman more than fucking you know joan of arc or hillary clinton even though i can't stand her (laughs) you know what i mean hillary's got a new book out what the hell happened? Uh, Hillary Clinton happened. <laughs> I know, but it's like in this day and age when women are achieving and have achieved so much, just to, to be so demeaning, to think that just some stupid advert is going to change a girl's life aspiration so dramatically, yeah, completely that, that she ruin thinks, her. I, I can't. I can't be a president. I can't I can only be, be a ballerina. Uh, yeah. Especially in a time where women are pretty much outperforming men on almost almost every metric. Doctor Who's a woman. <laughs> 
But yeah, I remember the uh, the Beachbody Ready episode. That the advertising standards agency did actually burn that advert, even though it it finished its run in the London Underground anyway. But they banned it with the reasoning that the product that was advertised didn't do what it promised it would do. That's why they banned it. They didn't ban it on the grounds that it made some fat women unhappy. The fact that some women got offended by it is not the reason it was banned. No, which I think is right. You shouldn't ban an advert just because it upsets someone, unless it's truly beyond the pale, right? It's it's because of all this, like we were talking about before, it's because of all this sort of fake heat that's been invented. We've sort of got this industry of offence now, where like you can be offended by something and it you can it's like a thing now. You make so, money like, from it. People want to be seen to be doing the right thing. Organisations want to be seen ticking the boxes, being politically correct and, you know, transformers. There's an ethos now in the corporate world that your advertising campaigns have to, at the very least, appear to be like political, social justice activism and that's how you establish and create and enforce a brand loyalty with your potential customer base like do you remember pepsi tried that they did that advert of um it was almost like a black lives matter protest kind of set they had to they, pull it very quickly it was, yeah, was it massive one of, was negative it one, backlash one of the that. kardashians oh one of the younger ones yeah, yeah she was lead, she was name. leading the sort of charge on the police <laughs> <laughs> she was making an offering of pepsi peace oh, well okay yeah that's what I'm talking about, though, in terms of, I agree with you, adverts aren't the all-powerful brainwashing mechanism that a lot of people try to make it out to be. Like, you're right. I mean, I got into an argument with someone on Facebook about this ASA gender stereotype ban. Right. And she was going, well, you know, my daughter asks me, how come everything for girls is pink and everything for boys is blue and I don't like pink, my favorite color is blue. It's like, well, that just goes to show then, doesn't it, that the marketing department, they can't make young girls and women, what have you, they can't make you like something you didn't already like. Yeah. I often think if you just like left a little, little child girl and a little child boy in a room that was just like full of scraps and they didn't have toys and they eventually had to make their own toys, naturally, what toys would they make? Well, this is what the ASA is. I need to ask um, a girl this. This is what the ASA's reasoning is going to be. It's like, oh, well, yeah, these things, none of it is nature. It's all nurture. It's all learned behavior. And that's why we have to change these adverts. Tom, we need to get two small children. (laughs) I know people who have sons and daughters. And you can tell from like a really early age whether your son is going to be a boy's boy, if you will, do you know what I mean? Or if he's going to be a little bit more effeminate or what have you. And you can tell the same difference in girls as well from a young age. Studious. It's not, I think it's the combination, it's the battle, that ever, the never-ending battle between nature and nurture. I don't, but the ASA's reasoning is all 100% nurtured. They think there's no such thing as human nature, it's all just learned behaviour. It's bullshit though, because like, you even see it in adults, you get really like menly men and girly girls. Advertising's not that powerful anyway, right? Is this ban even really necessary? Do we really actually have to outright ban the promotion of gender stereotypes in adverts in order to have yes. an understanding that there are different types of... That basically, there are different types of people in the world. Basically, people are so fucking stupid now. <laughs> Everything has to be like... Explained. Explained and written down. And so you have to explain it in the most fair way possible and... Do you think it's being done on behalf of what I would call Puritans who are just sitting around waiting to be offended? Like, Why are we kowtowing to these people? For some reason, there is a drive by who I don't know to make everyone feel like a victim 
or oppressed. I think what you're referring to is victimhood culture. Yeah, but it's not. It, but it's it's gone beyond just a sort of victimhood culture now. It's like it's like a it's like a persuasive thing where it's like invasive. Everything, every aspect has everything has the potential to create a victim out of someone now. Even an advert. It's really infantilizing, don't you think? Like we're I treating say, ourselves like children, or like we're being deliberately dumbed down, or like everyone is so fucking stupid now. Here are the rules; they have to be written out. Is that like it's? It's in a way, it sounds like a sort of lovey-dovey hippie thing, but it's actually quite authoritarian. It's insidious. When, yeah. it, when it, these are the rules, and they're going to be in every strata of society. And of course, it's sold to you as it's for your own benefit. Society will be better because of this. But yeah, I completely agree with you. It's uh, to me, this is another piece of evidence that Britain is slowly marching towards a left-leaning authoritarianism. We kind of came from right-wing authoritarianism mm, into centrism, and then back to left-wing yeah. authoritarianism. And and when you say left-wing, say it was the eighties, right? And someone came to you and said, "Oh, I just read in the Soviet Union they've banned adverts that promote gender stereotypes." You'd think to yourself, "Yep, that makes perfect sense. They're communists." That's the kind of thing a communist regime would do. Yes, the adverts must be approved sure. by the ministry. But then when we do it here in 2017, we can't make that connection. This is the kind of thing a communist state would do. We don't think that. We think, oh, no, 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 no. It's for the benefit of the children. Yeah. And like I say, people might think you're talking about laws. No, we're not talking about laws. We're talking about this is how you have to think. This is what's good. This is what's bad. Yeah. This is what reality is. It's controlling behavior and perceptions of reality, an attempt to. Or at the very least, um, it's saying, if you think this, you are wrong. You, you could be a monster, a bigot. You're a bigot if you think it's okay for a mother to do the washing, clean the kids' clothes, and for dad to go out and work in the shed. I know. You're evil. It's an interesting way of looking at it, but I think when you boil it down, that's how you, you have to look at it. And I just think, what's, what's the end game? I, I don't understand it. The people who are pro things like this will say, oh, listen, Tom, you're being alarming. Oh, my God, you're talking about communism. This isn't communism. It's for your own good. Why can't you get that, Tom? Why have you got to be a contrarian? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this is like this is what they sound to me. The people who are pro this, like it's censorship without question. And I'm generally pro the widening of the circle. Like if um, if the ASA came out and said there needs to be more transgenders in adverts, there needs to be more black people, what have you, wheelchair bound people. Yeah, fine, okay with that. Pro that because you're widening you're widening the circle. It's being more inclusive. You're not banning things. Well, See what I mean, yeah, but. I can understand why. Like, we, we talk about how, in themselves, adverts are like, everyone's pretty cynical about adverts. They don't really affect us, give as much shit, who cares? But the overarching thing of, of controlling the narrative and forcing people to only be able to say and talk about certain things. Now, as we move into a world where, like, something you say or write can be spread instantaneously mm. to, to millions of people. And exist forever. In, in a way like it never could before. The need to control what people say is for the people who run stuff. The need to control what, what people do and how they communicate is, is bigger than it's ever been for them. I don't know if there's really a need for it or if there's just there's a, an increasing number of people that want that power. Online peer pressure. Yeah. So, but there is a, there's so a, it's sort of working, isn't it? It's sort of working in society by sort of gradually sort of creating these strictures in expression and what, what's acceptable and what, what the norms are. There's an attempt. People yeah. are definitely making it an attempt 
attempt to mm. mandate conformity, I would yeah. say. But like you said earlier, you've always got the choice. You don't have to buy the product. You don't have to change because um, a terrorist attack happened somewhere like Belgium. You don't have to change your profile pic yeah, to but the Belgian flag. But but it's a scary but thing. You will, you'll, someone will try and shame you into doing exactly. it. That's what I mean. It's, it's, a, it's a scary thing when that, conf- when that conformity starts to become self-policed by the public at large, when they actually start to emulate in their own behaviours what the, the, the ASA are <laughs> doing. It's Not minding their own fucking business. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is a very sort of subtle way of, uh, of control. Because their remit, the ASA's remit used to be, we are the re- regulatory body that ensures there's, not, there's a limit, at the very least, on false advertising. The public has to complain first, and then they react to the complaints and decide whether or not Sometimes they had to ban them for good reason. Like, I always remember the classic You've Been Tango dads, where Ooh. it was like a, a, a fat man painted orange went around and slapped people on each cheek, yeah, their boxed face. Boxed them on very, the ears. Yeah. And of course, school, school children started doing it and like inadvertently sonic boom in each other's heads. Sort of. <laughs> My brother, um, his eardrums burst because the kid did, did it to him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this like that's a uh, to me that's kind of legit. People were actually being physically harmed to the point their eardrums were bursting. <laughs> Whereas this is more along the lines of, oh, you might, oh, careful now, you might potentially upset a very niche demographic here. Yeah, who you never meet or know. It's not quite the same thing, and it's sort of a vicarious taking of offence. It's the classic. I took offence on someone else's behalf, kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's like a boogeyman, isn't it? It's just like it doesn't exist. We need our institutions and our regulatory bodies to comprehend that look, we're not all highly susceptible children who are just ripe for being taken advantage of and manipulated. We don't need this constant protection and nannying. Otherwise, we risk creating the conditions for an incredibly bland, completely sanitized non-culture of just nothingness. Sheeple. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that word. Zombie nation. Uh, I would say agrophobes. Like people who are really just definitely afraid of ever offending someone else. That's it. it but it's, sep- it's separating people, isn't it? It's like as, as, as everyone becomes more stratified and victimized and like, you know, I can't be as close to you because I'm like different from you. Yeah. Like, you know, the um, rather dismissively labeled oppression Olympics. <laughs> no, but it sounds like fun. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of um, turning your victimhood and like taking it and comparing it with other minority oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. victimhood statuses I, and just, trying to I'm, figure out who's got it worse. I've, I've read now where uh, there's research coming out now that shows the fucking obvious to anyone who's got a bit of common sense that all of this rhetoric and this comparing each other's victimhood statuses, what it does is it lowers the level of empathy people have between different ethnic groups and demographics. It doesn't make them any friendlier. It just makes everyone see everybody else as like an enemy. I, I was I was just thinking of the oppression Olympics to be hilarious. I just had these images of all these like sobbing people trying to do the ja- javelin and 100 meters. But like, <laughs> by, I can't finish first because I'm like weaker than you. By no, law, you finish before me. <laughs> by law, nobody gets to beat the refugee team. <laughs> Really, like I went into this conversation with you thinking, oh, I'm just talking about men versus women again. But it's not. It's not about censorship. It's not. And I don't want to sound too tinfoil conspiratorial, but it's incredible how you can control people through imposing bullshit rules on them. You know, like if nobody fights back, 
just online discussion, how it's become sort of self-policing now and certain things you can't say. And yeah, no get, one likes getting get banned, do And um, things you say on the pub, you wouldn't say online. Or even things, there aren't in many pubs now, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's become sort of self-policing and it's it's like a sort of, it's not a nice police, it's more like a yeah. sort of Stasi police. Exactly, I find it insidious. That's what I mean, it's for... Yeah. But you know what it reminds me of? Um, that famous Soviet story about the nine-year-old girl who heard her parents like talking in the kitchen... And like they were, I don't know, they were like counter revolutionaries and the Soviet speak, I guess. Mm. And she grasped them up to the authorities and they ended up going to the gulag. <gasps> and the Soviet oh, regime yes, made yes, a yes. hero out of her. Yeah, and I remember that. She sacrificed her own parents yeah, for the mother of the I remember you know, that. The and, and then they, 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 and then when she got to 18, they changed her identity and she became Angela Merkel. I remember that one, yeah. She used to work for the East German police. Uh, Hitler Youth, she was in. But oh, who wasn't? Who wasn't? Exactly, yeah. It's like complaining about an Israeli being in the IDF. Insert obligatory joke about Britain struggling to flee Europe. It's time for our review of Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. I wonder if it's coloured a bit by the fact we're British, because the Americans weren't in the war. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. Directed by Christopher Nolan, who obviously did Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Inception, starring Tom Hardy, Kenneth Branagh, I can never pronounce, is it Cillian Murphy? Yeah. Mark Rylance, and the acting debut of one Harry Styles from uh, One Direction, I believe. Mm-hmm. And also, um, he was the main young guy in it. And debut of Fionn Whitehead, did you say? Yeah, completely unknown, yet the main character of the film well there were like three main protagonists and the film's set up there's a bit of a like a kind of type shifting timeline whereby uh, one protagonist we follow for the whole week second protagonist we follow for a day and the third and final protagonist tom hardy the raf pilot we follow him for one hour yeah and and of course that that has become quite a trope in christopher nolan films like time is like putty to him in this film I, i initially found it quite jarring but then it ties up in the final scene the final act so excitingly this is one of the best films I've ever seen. He is a great director. The three storylines come together at yeah. the end in like a one big yeah. final crescendo. It's like, done really well. Which but let's, I've never for, seen before, For people who yeah. don't know Dunkirk, right? Spoilers, um, <laughs> Germans lost World War II. But Dunkirk, 300,000 British Tommies were stranded on a French beach, surrounded by what in this movie are only referred to as the enemy. The reason why it's uh, considered a miracle is that Churchill figured, at best, the most number of people he'd be able to get off of that beach was 30,000. We ended up getting 300,000 off the beach in the end. Yeah, but the fact we managed to escape, like I say, you know, we lost the battle, but we won the war. If, if, If all those soldiers had not made it off the beach things would have turned out dramatically differently because like i say that the the americans didn't enter that war for another year so from that point onward it was nazi occupied france though it wasn't like a it wasn't a big military victory it was really a a defeat because of course the british army the the, the british didn't want to risk 
the Navy because things were so precarious. So, the Luftwaffe were in the area. Yeah. They would have just bombed the shit out of yeah. them. So, so, it, so it fell to ordinary citizens, boat owners, canoe owners. Yeah. Weekend sailors. To, to, to set out across the 22 miles of the English Channel just to try and collect as many of these guys as they could. Yeah, rescue mission. So this would be Christopher Nolan's depiction of the miracle of Dunkirk. I'm still affected by it, which doesn't happen very often with, with me in films. And Like still thinking about it. It's, it's, it's one of the best films I've ever seen. Obviously, I saw it in 70mm IMAX. I was completely immersed. IMAX goes beyond your field of vision. When the I first, think that's like an important aspect of it. When the first single gunshot goes off in that film, everybody leapt out of their seat. <laughs> Bang! It's so loud. And from that point on, the tension just, just keeps going the whole film. Yeah, it's definitely um, an audio-visual spectacle. And I would say like a masterclass in uh, demonstrating how to keep the tension rising constantly with very little respite. And also, I would say like um, mounting despair. Like it's quite a somber depressing kind of film oh, as yeah. well as it's not it's not victorious but it is in in small parts but let's have a ticker tape parade it's not that sort of war film no way but the spectacle of it it left me in a like a heightened state of awareness mm. like i actually found it difficult to sleep afterwards like the movie uh, it immerses you that much the call went out we have to go to dunkirk Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. Now, what I've seen as a complaint about the movie is the fact that the plot is a little bit thin. It's sort of like stripped down. Like plot elements wise, there's not a lot going on. What do I need to make a film? I need, I need, uh. Characters. I need characters. I need a a camera and a plot. Something at stake. A plot. You don't. I don't you a film is a film cinema is is the sound and the images and what you're looking at right it's i'm not, not just moving images people who don't like it i'm not going to be like horrible and say it's like an intelligence test thing some people expect certain things when they go and see what they call the movies i i go especially and if they think it's a war movie going into it thinking it's a war movie some people expect to have their hand held throughout a whole film they want to have a character that's a bit like them someone they can get behind and explain things and as explain well, things like explicitly and you don't get that in this film almost zero expository dialogue like explaining what's going on who these people are like so if you don't already know it yeah i guess it can be a little bit off-putting you know, you, you don't get any character building. Like, I know it's, it's, it's a very classic thing to have in war movies, a, a scene like a sort of lull in the action where the characters will be sitting around a campfire or a fallen comrade. Yeah. And that you'll get... Telling stories. Or you're telling stories. Or there's always this one guy who's like, opens up a locket and says, oh, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is this is Daisy, mate. Oh, she's who's mag- that? Your girl back home? Yeah, she's hot, you know. Oh, he's definitely going to die, that guy. Yeah, he's definitely going to die. You know, you don't get any of that in this film. because there's the usual no- tropes. But they, they, even if they wanted to do that, it wouldn't have fit in with this film because there's no fucking space for that. At the very start of the film, you're following four Tommies walking through what are deathly quiet streets. And then these leaflets drop from the sky. I can't remember what it said, but it was something it's, taunting from the it says, Germans. It says, we have you surrounded. Yeah. Surrender. And then suddenly sniper fire, they're running. And then, oh, yeah, like the first protagonist that we're introduced to, played by Fionn Whitehead. 
whose name I just learnt today. And of course, the fantastic the soundtrack by, by Hans Zimmer kicks in, which exists throughout the whole film. You know how it starts in with that the background. stigmata? Building up the whole time. Comes in and out of the whole film, till the very end. The, the, you're right, the music, it starts off and then carries on right the way through. Seamlessly, I would say. Now, we've said it's not a generic war film, and there's not much in the way of characterization, so it's not a character-driven drama either. I'd call it a semi-blockbuster, but there's enough action in it for it to be oh, yeah. considered a blockbuster. Tension. Christopher Nolan's sole focus, really, is the um, just he stripped back all of the typical tropes that you would expect in a war film and focused on the single aspect of the panic-inducing... Just the event. You know, just the fact that you're constantly, you're aware the whole time that yeah. the Luftwaffe could just drop a bomb in your head any moment. A, ger- a sniper up in a building could get you at any moment. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that was amazing that they used so many. Death is always there. They they, they used so many real props, vintage and like, planes and, and boats, and like when the yeah, which I think helps with the um, being more immersive. The fact yeah. that it's clearly not CGI. Another war trope that it that it didn't have, and obviously people love ben- interest. No, no, no. The, the, the benchmark of, of of modern war films in the day of like Hacksaw Ridge and Saving Private Ryan is I'd call it like gore porn, where you've got intestines, blood and guts, and yeah, it's a very bloodless movie. It's quite relieved when I saw the twelve A come up, you know, the certificate, and I was like, oh, good, it's not going to be like people's heads being blown apart and stuff. Yeah, you know? or like. Vince Vaughn in oh. uh, Hacksaw Ridge yeah. holding uh, half a severed torso as a, as, a, as a meat shield while he runs and uh, mows down the enemy. What about the, um, the sound effects? Oh, Does the loud, quiet thing. Yeah, and s- shocking sounds as well. Like Yeah, every time a gun goes off, it cuts right through you. Yeah, it was an incredible sound. It would definitely win an Oscar for sound. Kept you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, I really... Like w- the sound of the, you know, the air horns? Oh, the Stukos. But, I, but the, the whole way that he had this, these three different areas of weekday and hour, mm. and they were all different. Um, like so land, air, air and water. Yeah. yeah, but also the way he shot it was, was quite specific for each one. Like on mm. the beach, he really made the most of these huge, expansive IMAX shots. Yeah, a lot of you know, you could see, panoramic shots. You could, like you say, you could almost see across the channel to even <laughs> some of those shots. It was incredible. But then the day segment where they were on, on the water in the, in the small little boat with Mark Rylance, a lot of that was handheld and was sort of moving close in, quite claustrophobic. Yeah, very and claustrophobic. It, it, it made you sort of seasick almost at some point. Uh, but even more claustrophobic than that was the one hour segment with Tom Hardy and his Spitfire. The small little cockpit. You, you, you were stuck in that little cockpit. Loads of um, first person perspective. Like, if you like your shoot 'em up games, you'll be like moving around in your chair. It was, must have been a bitch to get there, an IMAX camera. Yeah, but he was. <laughs> in a cockpit. I know, but, but even that shows, like, as a director, he was really trying to keep that distinction, even in the way he used the camera in those three different time frames. Mm. He's a real visionary director, oh, I would say. He's the kind of guy who's got like a real clear vision of what he wants it to look like and he knows the techniques to get it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To deliver yeah. on what he wants. Yeah. And people people might say, Oh, there was no characterization. When when they were in danger, I didn't want them to fucking die. Yeah. What about the acting? 
again it was it was was minimalist like as as an actor it would be like a dream dream to get this like role if you were a yeah. bit lazy because there wasn't much dialogue you don't have much dialogue you can just sort of stand there and look look stoic you're gonna get yeah. cold and wet kenneth branagh thought it was really good i thought it was great tom hardy really like the tom hardy didn't have a hell of a lot to work with it was basically like bane's granddad Dark Knight Rises, everyone knows Tom Hardy can act really well with his eyes. Like, just his eyes. Yeah, he was amazing. Harry Styles, acting debut. He was alright. He was okay. I think he was good. I think I think he... Didn't that, take you out of the film. Like, no. You recognise it's Harry Styles, but you're not bothered by it. He's still got a good... He, he, he gets a decent... He got a decent scene, all of his own. He gets a chance to put some real venom, and his character is, like, completely different and um, a threat. And I think he was good in it. I think he, he did all right. But in this, he was perfect. Like I say, that the the lead, Fionn Whitehead, hardly said anything, but was so expressive with his face and eyes. A really good actor. The real standout performance for me, though, was uh, Harry Styles. No, I'm joking. No. It was Mark Rylance. Mark. He's the civilian weekend captain of a yeah. pleasure cruiser type thing. But he he was just like the the bravest and like most the most stoic. Aside from all the crazy sort of action and the actual threats of war, there are also some like sort of moral dilemmas that happen. Mark Rylance was like an injection of humanity into what was a really inhumane war. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He was that kind of reminder of you've got to cling on to something. There's got to be some sort of emotional investment. And I think that was the aspect of the film. But stiff up a lip, man. Fucking. Did what had to be done. Yeah. You know? Stiff up a lip. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. If we go, they will die. You're weekend sailors, not the bloody Navy. You should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around! We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. How, how, will, how it will translate to watching it at home? That because I don't I don't have a seventy yeah. millimeter IMAX at home at the moment, but I'm going to be sitting fucking close to my TV. That's for sure. <laughs> Your eyes will go square. Yeah. So I would say, in summary, an incredibly immersive and exhilarating film to watch. I I'm happy to call it a visual masterpiece at the very least. I don't know. It's weird. It's such a kind of unique film. Yeah. I wouldn't it, almost. It, it could almost be like a war simulator. Cause, yeah. Because it because it puts you in an adrenalized state and it mm. keeps you there for, for the for the like constantly injecting just you under with two hours adrenaline um i particularly found it very very moving and in in a very sort of subtle spiritual way um of being this little island <laughs> of people <laughs> little england is and you were going to bring it in and they were just trying to get back home just trying to get back home and they, well, they weren't coming back as, like, conquering heroes. They were running with their tail between their legs. It was definitely a very strong outing from Christopher Nolan. You can tell, watching this film, you understand why a lot of people think Christopher Nolan is arguably the best director of the, like, current, current crop of directors out there. But it's not the perfect film. It is lit down a little bit in the sense of what was obviously an art, artistic choice of stripping it down so that it's just all about the rising tension. It's not about the characters and their backgrounds and getting to know them. There's nothing to it about that. But I would highly recommend. It's an amazing visual spectacle that leaves you 
little bit buzzing, you know what I mean, when you come out of it. My last words on it, as opposed to you, I don't really have that much criticism of it. Because if I think of like art, now a really good artist, he might only have to do like a few lines here and there to, to get his message across and really affect you powerfully. And that's what that film is. It is stripped back because it, it doesn't need all this bullshit. It is actually more beautiful for having these purity and finer lines to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for listening to us two drunken bozos prattle on. Hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please leave us a like on SoundCloud and Facebook, or at the very least a positive review on iTunes. Failing that, you can follow us on Twitter, at TDHO. My special thanks to my very special guest, Tim. Thank you for having me, Tom. Feeling patriotic. It's cheered me up, actually, talking about Dunkirk. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye.